Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you be with us. Um, help me to be faithful to, to your word as I, as I uh, share what's in the scriptures. I pray that you would help folks to know you more intimately and, and know your son through, through the word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I, I'm going to give you a disclaimer up front. This is originally going to be the Christmas Eve service sermon, but I chickened out because it is just not very uh, Christmassy. And so, um, I, I, I just let you know that up front. Um, about a year ago, I did, a, I did a sermon on one of the Psalms, and uh, afterwards I was talking to Michael, and he said, Eric, you English teacher, that. And uh, I, I, y'all know what that is, right? It's where you pick out every analogy and every, you know, weird little parallel and line in it. And, and uh, um, I, I've taken that to heart. And actually, I think about it every time I write a sermon. I, I'll ask myself, well, am I English teaching this? And, and I'm going to say up front, there's no way to not English teacher this section. Um, this is Matthew, English teaching the life of Jesus. Um, it is all analogy and parallel and history and everything else. There's, it is it is just replete in that. But it's cool because it tells us a great deal about who Jesus was, and it tells us a great deal about the bigger story of the Bible. Um, and, and so as we get into this text, like, be aware um, that, that this is substantial and it's heavy, and there's a lot of, like, drawing out of other areas, but, but it's neat stuff. So um, as we dive into it, originally I, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, um, and what we're doing here is we're working through, like, oh, if you are a small child and you want to go to children's church, or if you have a small child, or if you're just really immature and can't stand the thought of hearing a, an English teacher's sermon, um, you can head downstairs for the uh, children's church. Sorry, I didn't announce that sooner. The kids were all panicking. Did you just ho-ho-ho at me? Um, <laughs> we're, we're working our way through Matthew's gospel, um, specifically doing just Matthew's infant narr- narrative, right? Infancy narrative. And it started with the genealogy, and we went on to, to um, the story of Joseph and, and you know, him being told about Mary. Um, and, and now we should be doing the, the Magi, the three wise men. But we're skipping over that because it fit better for Christmas Eve. Um, and then... So this time around, we're going to, like, finish Matthew's infancy narrative. And if you want to hear the story of the, the Magi, come back tonight at 6, and, and we'll be doing that. Um, so just heads up, that's what's going on. Um, Matthew wrote for a Jewish audience. So, like, what he's doing here is he's explaining how all of the stuff that's happened beforehand plays into the story of Jesus. And so, like, like and it, actually, if you read the Bible without catching this, you lose some some real depth to it. There's there's some really cool stuff there, um, but like Matthew is working in this theme of kingship because Jesus is in the lineage of David. We talked about that in the previous two sermons that Jesus is like sort of this King David um, king, like in that line. And actually, it was a promise that God made to David that uh, one of his great 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 grandchildren would be on the throne in Israel forever. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And Matthew's trying to get the audience to understand that that's the case. Um, there's also kind of an underlying theme here that it's easy to miss. So God made a bunch of promises to his people, right? The covenants. And the covenants all link together like puzzle pieces. Got it? Um, and even maybe a way to understand it would be where one law modifies the next. 
where God promises Abraham that if Abraham follows him, all of his descendants would be God's people and, and that the whole world would be blessed through one of his descendants. And so you have where the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham are God's people. And then Moses comes along and he modifies the agreement. Um, I can't th- help but think of Darth Vader every time I say that, but that's not appropriate. Like, um, God modifies the agreement by saying, well, look, if you guys are in a relationship with me, this is what it means to be in a relationship with me. And so like previously they were dealt with according to them being descendants of Abraham or not. And then God adjusts it by giving the law and saying, hey, you have to obey the law to be right with me. This is the guidelines for relationship with God. And then after Moses, you have a fellow named David who comes along and God makes a contract with him and adjusts how he deals with the people. He says, David, you are like my son. And that, of course, is talking about Jesus coming in the future, where Jesus is actually the Son of God. Um, but also he says, look, descendant on the throne forever, just covered that. Um, and the other thing he says about that is he says, listen, um, when he messes up, basically, God's people, like the nation of Israel, will be judged according to the king's behavior. So if he messes up, the people catch it, right? And if he does great, the people are judged according to the king's behavior, which is a great deal when you have a good king, but it's a really bad deal when you have a bad king. And eventually that results in the kings being so wicked that the entire nation is dissolved and taken into captivity by the Babylonians, right? Um, But that contract still stands. This God's people will be judged according to their king's behavior, right? Um, With the new covenant, what we have is where Jesus, God's son, like God realizes that none of the kings... And no man would ever live up to the standard because we're sinful. Were you raising your hand or just stretching? (laughs) I did that just to pick on you. Um, None of us would ever live up to that standard. So he sends Jesus who lives this perfect life and is obedient and like is crucified and dies and gets punished in our place. And so the king is judged um, according to our behavior. It's the last modification. Then we're judged according to his righteousness. And so we're we're Jesus's followers, if we're his people, we're judged according to his righteousness, which is a good deal, right? Because he gets punished for us and we get forgiven for him. Um, And so going forward, like that's sort of the background for what is about to happen here. Um, When they had gone, this is referring to the three wise men who show up, give gifts, honor Jesus as this king of the Jews, and then leave by a different route. They had met Herod along the way and Herod said, hey, Give me an opportunity to come worship him, too, because Herod is a bad guy, right? That's a little more background here. Um, king Herod was king over Israel for about 40 years, and he was really, really awful. King Herod was so hated by his people that he decided that when he died, he wanted all of the most prominent people in the city of Jerusalem executed the same day so that for, folks would mourn on the day that he died because he knew nobody was going to be sorry he went. Um, one of the sons that ended up king, um, Herod knew he wanted to be king, but he didn't trust him. So he kept him in prison until he died and he let him go to become king. Um, Herod killed most of his wives. In fact, um, was it Caesar at the time said, I would rather be a pig in Herod's kingdom than one of his wives because they didn't eat pigs, but he killed a lot of wives. (laughs) Um, he was awful, and the Bible's um, a story about him is pretty bad, um, and it's pretty bad because everything about him was bad. Um, so Herod is Herod is this bad guy, and he hears about um, 
he hears about this king from these, these wise men, these magi, these court magicians is what they were, who came from the east. And they say to Herod, well, we're here to see this newborn king. And Herod says, what newborn king? And, you know, the first thing he thinks is it's time to, time to wipe out another potential challenger to my throne. And he did that. I mean, he killed a bunch of his own kids, and actually he lost his throne for a period of about five years when an army from the east came and sacked Jerusalem. And he fled to Rome and got the Romans to back him in in recapturing his throne. And so anything coming out of the east is going to make Herod nervous, right? Particularly these wise men. They show up, and he says, all right, well, you know, I I need to kill this kid. If people are saying he's king of the Jews, I'll, I'll take care of him. Um, and so he tries to deceive the wise men, and God warns the wise men to leave by a different route. And so he's been lied to, deceived. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Um, this is the second instance where Joseph is told in a dream to run away or to protect the family, right? In the first instance, he had to protect Mary because Mary was pregnant out of wedlock. And so he protected her. And in this instance, like, hey, get up and get out of here, which is a big deal, right? I mean, leaving home to run off and hide for a couple of years is not a small thing. Um, They went to Egypt. This is about an 80-mile trip, right? Um, I can't stand driving to Great Falls with my kids in the car. Um, they, they went 80 miles, probably with a caravan or a donkey or something like that. And they, they escaped, um, all in order to escape Herod, who's about to try and kill him. Um, so he got up and took the child and his and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. Herod died in about three BC, right? So like the idea that Jesus was born in zero doesn't really calculate it was a guess by early monks they did the best they could with what they had Um, we know herod died in about 3 bc so this is probably around 4 bc right assuming jesus was born in about 6 bc got it um that's an early timeline it's the one i subscribe to it's not universal but like it's the one that makes the most sense um so he took the child they went to egypt and they stayed there until herod died um there's something kind of cool here matthew just said herod died right doesn't elaborate. You read other narratives of Herod death, like they gloried in it. Like most folks, when they talked about Herod dying, they made sure to let folks know Herod suffered. He had parasites, and they ate him out from the inside, and it was awful. Matthew kind of brushes over it because Matthew's not concerned about Herod, and Matthew's not concerned about this stuff. Matthew is concerned about what's going on with Jesus, with this story. Um, so they stayed there until Herod's death, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now watch this. Like Matthew did something cool here, and he does it kind of under the radar, and it's easy to miss. The prophet is Hosea, um, and Hosea is recounting the story of God's faithfulness in bringing the slaves out of Egypt, right? Like bringing them out of their slavery and delivering them out of the, the land of Egypt. And it's not exactly a prophecy about Jesus, but it is. Um, it's, it's more a recounting of what God did with his people. But what we see happening here is, um, through the course of Matthew's gospel, we're going to see Jesus show up in places the people of Israel like were, and he's going to do what they did only right instead of wrong. Right? Like if you flashback, how many of y'all know the story of Moses? 
Um, in that 80-mile trip the people of Israel took from Egypt to the Promised Land, it took them about how long? 40 years. <laughs> I, I, it feels like 80 miles is a long way, but, I mean, 40 years. Why did it take so long? It, like, because the people blew it, right? They get out in the wilderness, and they immediately start rebelling against God. Right? And in every instance and every opportunity, they rebel against God. And they find new and creative ways to rebel against God. They, God feeds them through miracles. And what do they do? They complain about the food. Right? It's like they were a nation of teenagers. Um, <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> um, they, Moses leaves for 40 days. And they say, well, Moses is probably dead. Time to start worshiping an idol. And they build a golden calf and start sacrificing to it and worshiping it and Moses is like, what are you people doing? You know, like, didn't you see this Red Sea thing a week ago? How did you miss it? You know, but they, they were so broken spiritually and so, like, separated from what God intended them to be that they were lost. When it finally came time for them to enter, like, return to the promised land, they get there and they decide that the inhabitants are too tough so they won't go. And so they spend 40 years wandering around in the desert, disobeying God, until the entire generation dies off, and then their kids get to go. Which means that when Moses actually led the people into Israel, he did it like with a large group of young people, right? Um, so, out of Egypt I called my son. What we see then is, we see where Jesus goes, and Jesus inhabits Egypt, and Jesus returns without screwing it up. That's pretty good, right? Like, if you think about crucial moments in your life where you have blown it, anybody have those? There's like three of us. Or is anybody lying right now? <laughs> um, like, like crucial moments in life where you've blown it and you thought, man, I could have done what God wanted me to do, but I just dropped the ball. This is one of the biggest moments in Jewish history, right? This is the big, serious, defining moment. The Jews talked about the Exodus constantly. It was the defining moment for them as a nation. Everything that they were, their entire identity as a people comes out of this. And they, it's basically the story of them blowing it. Big. And so God sends his son, and his son does it perfectly, right? And the other thing that's a huge analogy here, and this is English teaching, and this is Matthew, not Eric, so like you know, um, the story of the Exodus is the story of slaves being delivered, right? The story of people who are in bondage being taken out of their bondage and given something fantastic, um, which is what Jesus does. Like for his people, he comes for people who are enslaved to sin, right? And to be enslaved to sin is, is to want to do things right, to want to be obedient to God, to want to like do things like to a certain standard and failing. Um, that is what it means to be slave to sin. Paul describes it as the good I want to do is not what I do, but the evil that I hate is what I end up doing in the end. That is an Ericization quote, a paraphrase. Um, it's in Romans 7 if you want to read it. It's one of the best chapters in the entire Bible. Um, and so Jesus comes and he delivers his people from slavery to sin. And he does it first by being obedient. By the way, the next instance of this Jesus living out what the Jewish people lived out happens at the beginning of his ministry. Matthew records it right after the baptism. He goes into the desert and he fasts for 
40 days, right? And he's tempted by the devil, and he tempts him turn these stones into, into food, right, which is what the Jewish people complained about. Throw yourself off the roof of the temple and basically test God, which is what the people did when they said, we can't go fight those guys. They're too tough. They were testing God. Um, and bow down and worship me uh, is what Satan said to him, and that's what what they did with the golden calf, basically, right? They bowed down and worshiped something that wasn't God. Like Jesus, in this instance, we're seeing where Jesus is perfect in our place. In that crucial moment in life, instead of dropping the ball and screwing up, he did the right thing. Admittedly, he's probably two years old at this point. Um, But the point Matthew is making is, like, Jesus comes along and he does this right where we didn't. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in a great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Um, Herod killing these children is bad, right? Can we all agree? Like Herod's kind of a kind of a big jerk, um, to put it as gently as I can. <laughs> um, Bethlehem in its vicinity probably would have been about the size of Big Sandy, just for a little context, right? Um, and so what we're talking about is between 10 and 30 children, um, which, you know, honestly, when I read that, I always thought, wow, I, I always thought it was a lot more, but 10, 10, even 10 kids is a lot. Right. Um, And so what we see here is another instance, like an instance of a foreign like power, because Herod was not a proper Jew. Right. Herod came from an outlying region that during this, like there's an intermediary period where the Jewish people escaped rule from the Persians. They, They threw off the Persian yoke and they were an independent nation for a couple hundred years. And then they were conquered by the Romans. And in that time, they went around and they conquered the neighboring nations and they forced converted them to Judaism. Right. And Herod's father was a forced convert. Right. And so Herod is not a Jew. Herod is a like foreigner who managed to become king um, because well, because he's ruthless and horrible. I don't want to get into that right now. Um, so Herod is this foreigner who comes along and tries to snuff out God's promise, tries to snuff out the holy people. There's another instance of this, and for the Jewish people, they would have read this, and they would have picked up on what Matthew's doing here, right? Like, in context, what Matthew is doing is he's referencing back to the story of the exile, right? And what happened there is the Babylonians came in, they sacked Jerusalem, they actually sieged it for a long time and killed an awful lot of people. It is one of the, in Jewish history, it's, it's number two on the list of defining events, right? They took all of the people of worth. They didn't take everybody. They took anybody who had a skill or anybody who had wealth or anybody who was anybody, and they marched them back to Babylon. And they forced them to live there as, as servants, basically, as second-class citizens. And they left the nation of Israel, the whole region, they left it sort of desolate. Um, it, it was this awful event. And actually, what we see there, this verse from Jeremiah that Matthew quotes, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Like, this is a reference to this time when Herod sacked this small little town near Jerusalem and butchered the children. Because Herod, or not Herod, 
Nebuchadnezzar, who is also a really bad guy. Um, and and what what Jeremiah records is these mothers like weeping and mourning, and like like. For the readers, the first century Jew reading Matthew, they would read this and they would say, oh, you know, this is a reminder that this time of exile, this time of captivity, this time of separation from God was there. And it's pointing to the fact that Jesus is a deliverer that's going to bring him out of the end of it, right? Now, this isn't very Christmassy, right? I mean, there are no angels, hark the herald angels singing, Right? There's no manger, there's no nothing, but this is part of this infancy narrative, and it's a part of the early story of Jesus' life. And it's important because as wonderful as all this other stuff is, it's important to understand why Jesus showed up. And Jesus showed up to deliver his people, right? What's the first thing you, I honestly, okay, I'm going to, first thing you think of when you think of Christmas? Presents, right? Is there anybody who doesn't think of presents? Anybody who's lying? <laughs> um, I, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. I'm gonna give, but like this is this gift that God gives us in the birth of Jesus, right? He gives us somebody who stands in our place and does right where we fail. He gives us this Savior who leads us out of our most broken and sorrowful moment, right? And that's what's happening here. Like Matthew is telling us, Jesus is showing up to deliver his people from their weeping and from their mourning, Um and, and so what's spoken in the prophets is fulfilled. After Herod died, and again, died of parasites, really bad and unpleasant, and it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, um, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go back to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take up the child's life are dead. By the way, Herod probably had a group of other folks who were playing along with this, and they're all dead. No explanation. Um, but we know that they're all dead at this point. It's in the plural. And so, you know, Matthew's sort of hinting that a lot of people are gone at this point. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Now, Archelaus was 19. Um, and where Herod was bad, Archelaus was worse. Like, that is a real accomplishment. Like, one of the history's, like, big monsters that you outdid him, right? He was so bad that Caesar said, all right, that's it, we're getting rid of this guy. And he had the guy removed from power. Um, and, and Archelaus was only actually um, king over the region of Judea. They divided the entire nation up into three parts, right? Herod Agrippa, Herod Philippi, and Archelaus. And Archelaus was the guy who didn't make it. Where, where Caesar came along and was like, all right, well, get him out of here. He's bad. But he went a few years, and he killed a lot of people, and he was very brutal and everything else. And actually, there was talk of a rebellion against him, and so he was removed to keep that from happening. He was worse than his dad. So Joseph finds out this guy who is absolutely terrible is there, and he says, oh, we're going to go somewhere else. Um, is that the slide that – oh, did I not – there you go. Sorry. That wasn't just me talking. That was actually the verse. I just forgot to advance it. Um, so he was afraid of going there. Having been warned in a dream, that's a third dream, right? He withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So with, so was fulfilled, excuse me, what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this is the weirdest passage in this entire gospel. It is one of those ones that has caused a lot of folks to back up and say, well, wait a minute. 
How's that right? Because there's nowhere in this gospel or anywhere in the prophets where it says Jesus would be a Nazarene. And actually what Matthew does is he puts a pun in. And I love puns, right? And it's a two-part pun, which makes it even better. Um, Let me find it in my notes. I usually don't use my notes to to speak, but I have to because my Hebrew is this bad. The root here is either nezer or neser, right? It's not very clear from the origins. But Nazareth, there's a possibility that it was planted by Nazarites, which were guys who were like Samson didn't cut their hair and didn't shave and didn't drink alcohol and didn't, you know, a bunch of other stuff, and didn't, like, remain, uh, un, remain clean. And so there's a possibility that it's that. Um, and, and that is one thing, which would mean that Jesus is sort of the second Samuel and this deliverer and all that. Um, but the, the cool thing, this neser means branch, right? Branch. Um, if we read it that way, then that means that Jesus is this, like, comes from a place where he's from the branch. Um, Isaiah 11, which I have pardoned off here. uh, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, in the spirit of counsel and might, in the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Um, righteousness shall be his belt around his waist, and faithfulness a belt around his loins. That's from Isaiah. It's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Now, this Nesar would mean that um, possibly descendants of David planted the city, and if it was descendants of David, then he would be called a branch. Jesus the branch, right, would be what you would be calling him. Now, if that's the case, then that means that Jesus, like like what Matthew's saying is, like this Jesus that comes along, the prophets predicted he would be Jesus the son of David, Jesus the king in the line of David, and that's basically what David, you know, what Matthew's given us. Hey, this is the case. But at the time, Nazareth, like Jesus of Nazareth, the phrase Nazareth, was an insult, that's kind of funny, isn't it? It'd be like saying redneck or West Virginian is probably a much better way of saying it. Um, you know, it would be somebody from a really, really rural area where it was of no account and just knowing they were from there was a good reason to make fun of them, right? And so we have Jesus of Nazareth, sort of a double naming there. Jesus the king and Jesus the lowly. You know, Jesus the upraised and Jesus the servant. Um, which is, what better gift is there? A lot of times folks come at Christianity and they perceive it as a collection of rules, right? Be good enough or God will squish you. Obey well enough or God will stomp on you. Be perfect or else. And what Matthew gives us here and would be called a Nazarene is, Jesus is powerful enough to be God. He's obedient enough to do right where we fail. But at the same time, he's lowly and somebody you can just know, right? He's down to earth. He is a servant. And servant is, you know, basically Isaiah, all over Isaiah, is that Jesus was this servant. He's a branch from Israel, or from David, from the stump of David. But he's also, he's also a servant. He's also somebody lowly. Um, 
what do we do with all this? Because there's a lot of like background, isn't it? Um, the thing to do with all of this is to recognize that as we celebrate Christmas, what we're celebrating is God's willingness to step into our world on our level, right? God's willingness to go through what we go through only to do it right. Where we stumble, he stands. Um, God's willingness to send a king like, and, and to line up all of the universe and the naming of cities and places and everything else and to predict it hundreds and thousands of years, hundreds, sometimes, sometimes thousands of years, not hundreds of thousands, um, but, but many, many years beforehand to predict these things happening. And when Jesus actually shows up, he fulfills all these prophecies along the way. Some of them, like, like tangentially, some of them analogy, um, but Jesus fulfills these prophecies. And Ultimately, the fulfillment is that he's this, the king that God sends for us, the king who gets judged in our place and we get judged according to his righteousness, but also who's a loving servant. Um, Jesus who stands like amongst us. Like this is the greatest gift we could get. Um, the people at the time were looking for a conqueror, right? What Herod was terrified of is that a king would rise up and overthrow him. And that's not what Jesus was, right? Jesus was a king who's you know, struck down people with his breath. What does that mean? It means his words and the things he said were powerful. And they wiped out like sin and brokenness in the world. Jesus is a king who, who delivers, but he doesn't deliver with a sword. He delivers with, with obedience and humility and honestly with the death that he suffers on our behalf. Um, the great thing about Christmas is it's the opposite of what everybody expects, right? Like we're delivered from our hurt and our brokenness. That is what I wanted to, to draw out of this text for you. Um, this evening at 6, we'll do the three wise men. Um, and hanging in the back, right, hanging in the back on the Christmas tree are Christmas ornaments that were made by children from the church. Um, we did not buy these. These are made by children uh, and my wife. Um, and, and what we have, like we have camels, we have donkeys, and I think we have stars. Nope, stars are for tonight. We have camels and donkeys. And the idea here is... Um, we try to find ornaments that relate to uh, what we're preaching about or what the message is for the week. And this week, like, if, if something stood out to you, like the fact that, that God would line up the world so that Jesus went off into captivity or into exile the way that the Jewish people went off into exile and that he would live in our place perfectly, or the fact that, that God would send a deliverer from our hardest and most broken moments, or the idea that God would send a king and a servant on our behalf. I mean, whatever it is, if something stood out to you, grab one of them. Hang it up where you're going to see it and think about it. Because, like, Christmas has meaning as much as we're able to draw it into our hearts, right? As much as we're able to, like, relate to it and connect it with us. Um, Christianity is about a relationship with God. It's about knowing God through his son, Jesus. So if something stood out to you, grab up an ornament that one of the kids from the, from the um, Good News Club or, or my kids, maybe, um, made. And, and just hang it up and remember, like, God sends the best gift possible. And he sends it in the most counterintuitive way possible. Um, because he loves you, and he'd go to any distance to draw you close to him. Uh, let's close in prayer, and I'll let you all go. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us. Um, pray that you would be with us as we, uh, as we remember that Jesus, Jesus came on our behalf, Lord, that, that you, you lined up history, that you spoke through the prophets and predicted just all of these gifts, Lord, that, that you sent you know, the branch of David um, to be a lowly, lowly servant on our behalf. I pray that you would bless us in this time and, and help us to know you more through, through uh, this season of, of celebrating your son. In Jesus' name.
Amen.